Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I'm your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number four, season two, for the week of February 28, 2021. I first want to welcome everyone who is listening to this podcast today, whether you are a old or new listener. I appreciate that you're taking this time to try and inform and educate yourself about health and your body. As I've stated before, I have a particular viewpoint that the benefit of medicine is to enhance the quality of life that we are able to extend to individuals. The topic for this episode is feet. I particularly want to focus on uh, three particular health problems related to the feet. Common foot infections, metatarsalgia, and plantar fasciitis. I also want to spend a little bit of time talking about selecting proper footwear. So, as usual, I begin with anatomy. Each foot has 26 bones, 30 joints, and more than 100 muscles, tendons, and ligaments to hold everything together. As regarding the foot, it's divided into three portions or sections, the forefoot, the midfoot, and the hindfoot. The forefoot has 19 bones. The great toe has two small phalanges, and the lesser toes have three phalanges for a total of 14 phalanges plus the five metatarsal bones for a total of 19 bones in the forefoot. The midfoot has four bones, three cuneiforms called the medial, middle, and lateral, and one cuboid bone. The hind foot is composed of two bones, the talus and the calcaneus. Now as far as the nervous system is concerned, there are five principal nerves that provide the sensory and motor control of our feet. The first is the tibial nerve, which controls the calf muscles behind the tibia and fibula. The tibial nerve branches into a medial plantar and a lateral plantar nerve. And these two nerves provide sensation to the entire sole of the foot. The second nerve to the foot is called the deep peroneal nerve. It's providing sensation to the dorsal or backside of the foot. And it provides sensation between the first and second toes. If this nerve has been injured, a person will suffer from what is known as dropped foot or an inability to elevate the foot. The third nerve to the foot is called the superficial peroneal nerve. It provides motor and sensory uh, function to the lateral compartment muscles of the ankle. The fourth nerve is called the sural nerve. It runs on the outer foot behind the lateral malleolus, and it provides 
sensation to the outer foot, but it has no motor function. And the last nerve to the foot is called the saphenous nerve. It's a branch off of the femoral nerve, and it provides sensation to the anterior medial and medial side of the foot. So the tibial nerve is providing sensation to the sole of the foot. The deep peroneal nerve is providing sensation to the back side of the foot, the first and second toes. The superficial peroneal is providing motor and sensory to all of the back side of the foot. The sural nerve provides the sensation to the outer foot and the saphenous nerve provides sensation to the medial or inner side of the foot. Now the function of the foot is to support our balance for standing upright and to provide mobility. Amazingly, walking requires the coordinated effort between the feet, the knees, and the hips. There are two phases to the walking cycle, stance and swing. Stance makes up about 60% of the walking cycle. It represents the period of time when our foot is maintaining contact with the ground. Stance can further be broken down into four movements. Number one, the heel strikes the ground. Two, the entire foot is in contact with the ground. Three, the heel lifts up, shifting weight onto the ball of the foot. And four, the big toe provides propulsion for lift and swing. Now, the second phase of the walking cycle is the swing cycle. It makes up the remaining 40% of walking. It has two phases, an acceleration into the swing and two, a deceleration into the heel placement for the next step. So now that we know the anatomy and function, let's move on to some common foot infections. The foot is normally colonized by an organism called fungus. Many people are familiar with athletes' foot infections, which can be persistent and hard to treat, but they're rarely life-threatening. A foot fungus is highly contagious and can readily spread through contaminated floors, towels, or clothing. At any given time, around 15 to 30 percent of the population has athlete's foot. Dermatophytes is the most common fungal species to cause the foot infection. All it takes to establish a foot infection is for the foot to come into contact with a contaminated, moist surface. Gyms, saunas, swimming pools, and sweaty socks are all common sites for this type of contamination. The fungi feed on keratin a protein found in hair and skin and nails. The space between our toes provides an ideal environment for fungal infections to flourish. In between this space, it's dark, 
it's warm, and feet perspire or sweat, so it gets moist. Mild cases of foot fungus, or athlete's foot, can be treated with over-the-counter antifungal creams or sprays, such as Lotrimin, which is clotrimazole, or Lamisil, which is terbinafine. More serious or persistent infections may require oral antifungal medications, uh, such as itraconazole, for a period of three to six months. Now, onychomycosis is a slow-growing fungal infection beneath the toenail. Symptoms will include a thickened yellow or brown discoloration to the nail plate and separation of the nail from the nail bed. It often accompanies athlete's foot and is more common in people with weakened immune systems or peripheral vascular disease. It's very difficult to eradicate since topical creams are unable to penetrate through the nail tissue. A prescription medication called Pinlac, which is Cyclopyrox, is a typical uh, antifungal nail lacquer that can be painted onto involved toenails to help eradicate. Again, this will take several months before you completely eradicate the fungal infection in the toenail. Oral antifungal medications work best, but can take as long as 6 to 12 months for a nail to fully grow back. Lamisil, which is terbinafine, is considered to be the treatment of choice. However, while using terbinafine, one should try to minimize drinking caffeine because it can slow the metabolism of caffeine and give you a caffeine uh, jolt. The other thing to avoid is excessive sun exposure because terbinafine can actually promote sunburning. Other oral antifungal options include Sporinox, which is itraconazole, greasyofulvin, or ketoconazole tablets. All of the oral treatments would require periodic uh, review of the liver enzymes since these medications are metabolized by the liver. Now regarding bacterial infections of the foot, they most commonly are caused by an interruption of the outermost skin layer, epidermis, of our foot, which can provide an opportunity for bacteria to multiply. Certain people are at a higher risk for developing bacterial foot infections. Seniors, diabetics, people who are immunocompromised or might be undergoing chemotherapy or taking immunosuppressive medications. A particular type of foot infection called erythasma is caused by a bacteria species called Carinibacterium minutasuum and is most commonly seen in people with diabetes or those who are obese. The patches of infection are initially pink but quickly become brown and scaly and they start to flake and shed. Erythasma 
is diagnosed using an ultraviolet light known as a Woods lamp, which causes the bacteria to glow in an almost fluorescent floral pink color. Erythasma is best treated with a topical antibiotic cream that has fusidic acid or an oral antibiotic such as azithromycin or erythromycin. Abscesses are sometimes bacterial foot infections that progress beyond the superficial skin and involve deeper skin layers. They consolidate into a pocket of pus, which is known as an abscess. Most foot abscesses are caused by a puncture wound or an infected hair follicle. Staphylococcus aureus is the most common culprit, but other bacteria such as Streptococcus pyogenes, Fusobacterium necroforum, and Archenobactum pyogenes are also common pathogenic species of bacteria. Symptoms of a foot abscess usually includes redness, swelling, warmth, pain, and the formation of a raised bump that can spontaneously erupt. Low-grade fevers and general achiness may also accompany an abscess. Now, any abscess that forms around the toenail, we have a special name for, called a perinicchia. Perinicchia usually affects the skin around the cuticle or up the sides of the nail. Perinicchia can be acute, meaning they've developed within the last six weeks, or they could be chronic, meaning they've been persisting for more than six weeks. With all of these abscesses, the treatment typically involves incision and drainage, followed by supportive oral or topical antibiotics. Another type of bacteria called cellulitis can become a medical emergency. It typically is caused by a break in the skin barrier, but especially common in people with diabetes or poor blood circulation. Staphylococcus aureus and Streptococcus bacterial species are the most likely causes. Typically, there will be redness known as lymphangitis, which is an indication that the infection is migrating toward the lymph nodes. If this happens, the infection can become systemic and potentially life-threatening. Symptoms such as high fevers and body aches are sign of a serious infection. Now, here's some ways I think could help avoid foot infections. Number one, you keep your toenails properly trimmed. You keep your skin intact and undamaged. You wash your feet every day with soap and water. You avoid sharing socks and shoe nail clippers. And you avoid going barefoot in public places. Now the next topic I wanted to talk about is called metatarsalgia. Metatarsalgia is a sharp aching or burning pain in the ball of the foot 
just behind the toes. It typically feels worse when standing, running, or flexing your feet during the walking phase, the third and fourth movements of the stance phase I mentioned earlier. Metatarsalgia is often caused by intense training or overactivity, such as running and jumping, or injury to the ligaments, tendons, or bones of the foot that can cause inflammation. Another potential cause is having a high arch, which puts extra pressure on the metatarsals, or having a second toe that's longer than the first toe. This causes more weight than normal to be shifted to the second metatarsal head. Wearing high heel shoes or shoes that are not properly sized or are too tight or too loose can all be causes for this problem. Also, being overweight or obese or having other foot problems such as hammer toe deformities or calluses on the bottom of your feet or rheumatoid arthritis or gout. Fortunately, home treatments such as rest, icing the feet, and elevation will relieve the symptoms. Wearing proper fitting footwear and shock absorbing insoles or arch supports may prevent or minimize future problems with metatarsalgia. Left untreated, metatarsalgia can lead to pain in other parts of the same foot or opposite foot and pain elsewhere in the body, such as your lower back or hip, due to limping from an altered gait from the foot pain. And the third topic I wanted to address and mention is called plantar fasciitis. The plantar fascia is a thick tissue band that runs along the bottom or sole of our foot and spans from the heel bone, which is called the calcaneus, to the metatarsal heads. The plantar fascia is in the shape of a bowstring, which typically supports the arch of the foot and absorbs shock when walking or running. If tension and stress on this bowstring becomes too great, small tears can appear in the fascial band Repeated stretching and tearing will inflame the fascia. Other reasons for this is actually tissue degeneration. When this tissue band becomes inflamed, it produces a dull or stabbing pain on the sole of the foot near the heel. It is not the result of having heel spurs. Risk factors for plantar fasciitis include your age. It's common among active men and women between 40 to 70 years of age. Your gender. It's slightly more common in women. Being overweight or obese is another factor. Having an occupation that has you standing for long periods of time is another risk factor for plantar fasciitis. Walking barefooted or walking for long periods of time while barefooted can be a cause. And of course, certain types of exercises 
such as putting a lot of stress on the heels, which long-distance runners do, or ballet dancers, or aerobic dancers. Another risk factor is the anatomy of your foot, if you're flat-footed or you have high arches. And, of course, the shoes you've been wearing. If you continue to use old, worn-out shoes with poor heel support, you can promote plantar fasciitis. The pain of plantar fasciitis is typically more intense in the morning when a person first stands up and starts to take steps to walk or stand, or if you've been sitting for a long time and you first start to move. It tends to feel better with more limited activity. Treatment for plantar fasciitis includes rest, icing, shoe inserts with heel cushioning, foot massages, wearing a stretching splint at night when you're sleeping, or applying kinesiology tape for support, or physical therapy. In addition, there are medications such as ibuprofen and naproxen, and lastly, there are steroid injections and sometimes surgery. Steroid injections may work for a period of time. However, repeated injections can actually weaken the plantar fascia tissue and lead to more injury and tear. For runners, it's important to limit the mileage in your running shoes to about 400 miles, or when the shoes show signs of moderate wear. It's good for people that exercise to try to incorporate low-impact exercises, such as swimming or cycling, into the weekly workout routines. Now lastly, I want to provide a few tips for buying shoes, regardless of the purpose, whether it's just for uh, activity, work, uh, or fashion. What's best is you wait until the afternoon to shop for shoes because your feet naturally expand with use during the day and they may swell in hot weather. So you'll actually get a better assessment of the footwear. It's also a good idea to wear the same types of socks or stockings that you intend to wear with the shoes you're buying. Remember the shoes can vary in size from one manufacturer to another. So trust your own comfort level rather than the shoe size that's labeled. Have the salesperson measure both of your feet every time you buy a new pair of shoes because one foot may be larger or wider than the other by a particular size and you want to buy the shoes to fit the larger foot. Before trying on the shoes, it's good that you do the following. Feel and examine the inside of the shoes to determine if they have any tags, seams, or other material that might irritate your feet or cause blisters. Check to see if they provide any cushioning. If the shoe does not have a good arch support, add an extra arch support.
check to make sure the shoe has a firm heel cup and will not collapse when you squeeze it. Grasp the heel in one hand and the middle portion of the shoe above the heel in the other hand. You should not be able to move the shoe side to side around the heel. Next, hold the shoe at both ends. You should be able to twist it slightly, demonstrating a small amount of torque. There should be some flexibility in the toes, but you should not be able to have the front of the shoe touch the back of the shoe. Now turn the shoes over and examine the soles. Are they sturdy enough to provide protection from sharp objects? Now the next part of testing the shoes is to stand and walk in them. You want to stand in the shoes and make sure you have at least a quarter to half an inch of space between your longest toe and the end of the shoe. Now you want to walk around in the shoes to determine how they feel. Check that your heel fits snugly and isn't being pinched or slipping out of the heel cup. Check to make sure there's enough room at the ball of the foot. As you walk around the store, get a sense of how the shoes cushion against impact. Try to walk on hard surfaces as well as carpet to see how the shoes really feel. Avoid thinking that the shoes just need to be broken in or they'll stretch with time. Find shoes that fit from the very beginning. Shoes should be changed when the heel becomes angled. Continuing to walk in shoes with a worn out angled heel will alter every step you take and eventually cause pain in your legs or back. Women's dress shoes are hard on feet, especially the knees and spine. Heels can alter the posture and cause pain. If you are a lady who likes to wear high heels, select a lower heel shoe if possible, or a wider heel or wedge and a heel that does not curve. Wear high heels only when you have to. Now, my favorite topic, of course, is running and running shoes. Running shoes can cause pain before they look worn out, and this is because they lose their capacity to absorb shock. The guideline to replacing running shoes is to try and log in the amount of mileage that you've run in that pair of shoes and limit it to no more than 400 to 500 miles. Running shoes older than one year old may also cause pain because of changes in the sole of the shoe and exposure to humidity or heat. To prolong the life of your running shoes, save them for one purpose, running, and use old running shoes for walking. Different types of running activities require different type of running support. There are typically four types of running shoes. Those for motion control, those for stability, those that have neutral cushioning, 
and last are minimalist running shoes. The correct shoe for you is based on the type of arch you have and the biomechanics you have for balance. Before purchasing a new running shoe, try balancing yourself on one leg and do a one-legged squat. The shoe should feel comfortable right away and these tests should feel easier in the proper shoe. For sports that are played on a wooden court like basketball, a sports-specific shoe is better than a running shoe because it will provide more motion control and side-to-side -side support. For grass field activities where cleats might be used for gripping and stability, it's helpful to pick a shoe that allows you to add an arch support. Flip-flops and sandals are some examples of neutral cushioning and are really only good for short distance walking. Sandals that have straps to cover more of the foot and wrap around the ankle are better. Minimalist shoes are used for forefoot running to simulate barefoot running. To avoid foot injury in these shoes, it's best to slowly increase the time you spend running in them and get guidance for proper running form and mechanics. I recognize that I covered a lot of material, but I want to summarize and give you a couple of take-home points from the discussion. Number one, foot anatomy is detailed and designed for our balance and mobility. Number two, foot infections can be avoided by washing our feet daily with soap and water and changing our shoes and socks regularly, keeping our skin intact and our toenails properly trimmed, and avoid walking barefoot in public places. Number three, metatarsalgia and plantar fasciitis can be avoided by maintaining a normal weight, wearing proper supportive shoes, and not standing or exercising excessively. And number four, when buying shoes, be sure to examine them carefully for stability and support before putting them on your feet and allow your foot comfort to determine what shoes you will purchase. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd, where you may submit your questions there through direct message. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your personal physicians, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. As I regularly do, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who are really responsible for making this podcast and all my social media possible. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be loved, 
and may you have a peaceful heart.